I want to start today with these words that Zechariah wrote as a song over his son's birth, as his little baby John came into this world. In Luke chapter 1, verses 76 through 79, it says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sin, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. O shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Those are some powerful words for a father to say to a son. Especially for a father to say to a son that he didn't believe would ever come into existence. We started a conversation last week about Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, and her journey to the birth of their son John, who we would call John the Baptist, and how she ended up in seclusion for five months, wrestling with this story of this woman who had already mourned the loss of being a mother who'd mourned the loss of what was expected of her story based on the pedigree of her family and the expectations on her husband and the lineage that was supposed to continue. Because she had already mourned the loss of being a mother in this story, it took her a few months to figure out that while traditional Motherhood, in the age, and the season that it should have happened, wasn't going to be part of her story. Something very different was coming. The writer Luke actually puts both Elizabeth and Zechariah in the season of just before they died. It's why you say, and they were older in age, if you're writing in scripture. It's because their life had been lived. The story had been written. They were believing that what they had been waiting for wasn't going to come to them. And they were seemingly, seemingly at peace with it. But not really. Elizabeth needed her younger cousin Mary to come and meet her. And it was at that that her heart leapt with joy that her story was going to continue it was going to be something different than she would have ever written for herself. For Zechariah, it was a different moment that would define what the next season of his life would look like. Have you ever had a season of life where you've had unmet expectations? Someone let you down. Something let you down. God didn't fulfill whatever the belief system that you had for him or around him, what he had said or what he had promised didn't come through. Your parents were disappointing. Your children were disappointing. Your sports teams were continually disappointing. I have just a list. Like everyone I root for is just underperforming for me in life. The job wasn't what you hoped it would be. The move didn't work out. The relationship failed. Have you ever had 
expectations that you placed on yourself or others or ultimately God and yourself that just weren't working out. I have a friend by the name of Warren who, if I were to define the first 10 years of my relationship with Warren, it would be unmet expectations. He was the traditional Christian church guy that grew up believing anything and everything that was both in the Bible and in church bylaws, right? Like he memorized them. That guy. He thought that the path to success as a follower of Jesus was to marry a woman who loved Jesus, to memorize all the scripture about Jesus, and then to serve in every capacity within the church that you could on behalf of Jesus and know all of the rules and hold all of the rules really, really closely, especially in like a deacon's meeting because he was one of those. And then in an elder's, like he would pull out the rules and say, but this, and we're like, yeah, Jesus didn't write that, like people did, but he was pious in his pursuit until it came to his girls and to his wife he has a father of five daughters all of whom had interesting journeys with Jesus that left Warren's head scratching he was wondering what have I not done well in my house to create this chaos in my home that doesn't seem to be in scripture like he had a mess He and his wife would wake up in the morning and he would go this way to go do these things that the Lord had called him to do. And she would go this way to school to help children. And in 2004, we were sitting at a youth event retreat because Warren was always in for everything. No matter how far the road trip, no matter how far the overnight, no matter what we were going to do at the expense or at the experience at the church, he was always in. And he was sitting outside on this college campus in Tennessee. We're at this week-long youth conference and he's weeping, which wasn't normal. So as I sit next to Warren, I'm like, do you want to talk? I don't, at that time, I didn't have children at all. Didn't really understand emotions at all in my life. Like I had a relationship with my parents that emotions weren't really involved growing up. So I was the youth minister that was emotionally unavailable for sure. Like I was just weird. It was very, I'm here to fix your problem, Warren. And as I sit next to him and he's crying, I'm like, I hope this doesn't last very long because he's crying. Like there's tears involved and I'm not good with that stuff. I actually believed at one point I should never become a father because I'm not good with this. Like I will hurt emerging generations by my inability to connect with them emotionally. This would be bad. You should just not like do anything with it. I was a youth minister though, so I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I sit next to Warren and as, we're, as he looks over, he says, I'm going to lose my marriage. And he begins to talk about how much weight and burden that he feels on himself to bring all of his family into this piety that is righteousness. And he doesn't see a way to make it happen. And he's exhausted. And he's frustrated because the dream of marry a Christian woman and have Christian kids and grow up as the perfect Christian family just wasn't very clean for him and he didn't know what to do about it. So he just kept serving. 
something happened at the end of that conversation that day where instead of serving everyone at the church and instead of serving everyone around him, he just started one by one to start serving his daughters and meeting them where they were. And some crazy cool stuff happened in the way of reconciliation. But by 2012, his marriage was hanging on. He and his wife were entering into retirement. But he hadn't gotten to her yet. He was still waiting on God to fix that one. And so he invited her to go on a trip with him which was always with me because for some reason the only trips that Warren could ever go on were the ones I invited him to. So on that particular one, we were going to go to Mexico. Of course, it's me, right? You're tired of it. I hear you. Mazatlan. First shot at going there. I had no experience and no expectations. And Warren thought, I've been waiting for this kind of trip to go somewhere else because maybe... Maybe God can help me fix this. What he didn't know was that there was a children's home in, Ma- in Mazatlan that was specifically for me- special needs children or developmentally delayed children. If you can imagine how hard it is to work on issues that we have in humanity that aren't chosen, but they're born into, but we don't understand and we struggle with communication because We just don't do really well at figuring out how to talk when we're in silence. We struggle with that in the United States, and we have some of the most state-of-the-art facilities around us. Imagine a place where the rich continue to get richer, but the impoverished continue to get more impoverished, like Mazatlan, and there are just no resources for children who have a developmental delay, or who are blind, or mute. And so their parents, overwhelmed by an inability to provide or to communicate, just say here, and they hand them off to an institution that has no resources that can provide, but they're just saying it's a child, we have to take them in. And so there's a children's home that just has special needs children. And when we arrived, it was the darkest place I had ever entered into. We had not begun any work there. And as we enter in, the outside space is just trash, feces at that point, piles of trash. They're trying to start building a wall around the house because at night, uh, men and women who were desperate themselves would just walk in and walk past the children who could not communicate or do anything and they would steal anything of value out of the children's home and then just walk out. So a wall was starting to go up and I remember the noise was just overwhelming outside. There were screams and shouts and bangings and movement and caregivers saying no and yelling and trying to restrain. There was just chaos. And then we walked into a room and Warren walks in with his wife Jean and as they enter into the room we get the tour of here's where this children's home started, here's where we're trying to go. And all I remember in that moment is looking at Warren and thinking this is not going to fix your marriage. This is the hardest room I've ever walked into. I don't even know where hope is. 
Have you ever been so frustrated that you felt like angry because God just didn't fix what you had hoped he would fix when you wanted him to fix it? I believe that frustration in waiting can upend our faith. But I hope that by the end of this morning, we'll recognize that God's faithfulness leads us to celebrate him when the waiting ends. Because there are people around us who have lost their voice. And maybe at the end of the waiting, the voice will come back. And that's what we've been wanting to arrive from the very beginning. In Luke chapter 1 verses 5 through 7, we're going to navigate through four questions this morning that maybe meet us in the darkest places that we've ever entered into. Luke chapter 1 verses 5 through 7, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. I just wanted to pause there very quickly because Luke is so intentional, and I love how intentional Luke is. He does not give us a scapegoat to blame the barrenness of Elizabeth or the inability to do something that was culturally important on sin or life decisions, right? He writes it in, this couple were righteous before God, living blamelessly in a priesthood with descendants of Aaron. He, he bottles it up and says, you can't write the, well, if you were just more spiritual card on the story that I'm about to tell you. You can't write the, well, if you would just sanctify yourself on this next card. You can't write the, well, when you get Jesus, then he will fix your story on this card. You can't write any of that because Luke is starting the story by saying, like, they had that. They were with him. They were walking blamelessly. They were walking in tune with the commandments, and they were a righteous couple. So thankfully, let's just, as a church, let's just pull that cloak of shame off real quick. That our stories aren't broken because we're not holy enough. As Luke like just dives right into that moment and just says like this, this is the most righteous couple, and yet their story wasn't fulfilled. What they had been waiting for hadn't come, except that it was coming. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Zechariah has been waiting on this moment his entire professional life for sure, probably from his childhood because he knew what he was born into. He knew what the possibilities of his job looked like. It was a system that would say based on who you were born to kind of influenced what job you would have. And as a descendant of Aaron, the line to being a priest in a local temple in that would be, would make sense. In the temple would make sense for him. And there was a a practice that would happen of burning incense that was 
so special for the priest that actually once you had performed it once, you wouldn't perform it again. They wanted everyone to get to participate. So that's why they're saying they would cast lots. Anyone who hadn't burnt incense would throw their name in and possibly be chosen to burn the incense on another year. And then you would just keep going and younger priests would come in and add their names. And so it wasn't whittling it down until everyone had accomplished it. But the goal, part of your goal in life was to, to be able to have this honor. And it says that Zechariah is almost finished with the game, right? Like the life is coming to a close for him. He has not been able to play this role. And so he's been waiting on this. He gets the opportunity to do something that he has finally been, he's been waiting for most of his life. He gets the opportunity. And I can imagine in a close-knit community that the community was rallying around him as well too. Because we all have that grandpa in, the, in our lives that is not maybe biologically connected to us, but you're just like, yeah, him. I'm so glad something happened for him. And it seemed like Zechariah and Elizabeth in this community had this, they had the feel. So the, the, the community's outside worshiping, waiting in prayer, and it's finally his turn. And he goes in. And as he approaches this altar, there's an angel there. And a priest would know, uh-oh, either he's going to tell me something that I'm supposed to tell them that they might like, not be so happy about because that tends to happen, or I'm not holy enough to make it out of here. Like, Did they tie a rope to my ankle to pull me out if I go down because there's an angel of the Lord, and am I who he wants to meet right now? This would be a moment where he's looking going, the moment I've been waiting for, to burn incense, to come out, for us to celebrate, to be a community together. Of course, an angel would. It's been 400 years since we've had one of these. And you pick me at the end. And Gabriel's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. The question I ask you is, what are you waiting for? What's that moment? What's that moment that you might actually be a little disappointed if God did try to hijack it? You've been waiting for the promotion, for the role, for the relationship, for the thing to happen around you. And you would actually be a little bit perturbed if God showed up and was like, hey, hey, I know you've been waiting your entire life for this moment, for this successful thing to happen, for this breakthrough, but I kind of need you in it. I'm going to take it and I'm going to make it about me. I know you've been waiting for it and, and it's super cool that you're here, but... I, I need it because I was doing something more than what you were waiting for in this. Zechariah was waiting to burn incense. God was waiting until Zechariah walked into the temple. And we know that to be true because in verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. We believe at times that God's waiting on us to do something, to move into a place, or we're waiting on him to do something, and in reality, he's saying, I'm just listening. I hear you. I see you. It's not time yet. We're waiting. But I hear you, and I see you. 
And that's what Gabriel responds. Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be a great sight of the Lord in the great sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink. Time out. He will be a delight to you and he is never to take wine or fermented drink. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, right? Who brings joy to a party that's not allowed to participate? I don't know. That one. Just work on that one this week. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Sounds like a pretty cool concept that the angel of the Lord would give you when you find out that you're really old and pregnant, or about to be. This is what he's going to do. He's going to reconcile people back to each other. He's going to bring a relationship back. He's going to connect parents to their children. He's going to bring Israel back to where they're supposed to be. The 400 years are over. Zechariah, aren't you stoked for this? And Zechariah's like, how did you know that was the prayer of my heart? He doesn't move into, yeah, it's super exciting. Let me run out of this temple and tell the world I'm about to have a child who's going to tell you about what's coming next and he's going to be cooler than your kids, all of them. He doesn't dive right in. He responds by going, what? So here's our second question for you to think about. What's the prayer of your, what's the prayer of your heart? So Zechariah was waiting for an opportunity to be the man who brought the incense into the temple. But his heart was waiting on this unanswered prayer that he had abandoned years and years and years and years ago. What's the prayer of your heart and have you lost it? Have you given up on it? Have you just said, that's just not going to happen for me? Because there's a difference in what we're waiting for and what the prayer of our heart is And this angel on behalf of God comes and says, I know the prayer of your heart. It was not to bring incense into this temple and light it at this altar. The prayer of your heart is to be this dad that I need you to be. And Zechariah's response, how can I be sure of this? I would want to know too, except that it's a freaking angel, right? Like, I have it really jealous. I've needed that moment a few times in my life. Like, there have been a few times in my life where I'm just like, if you would just physically show your face up in here, because there's a lot of stories about that in there. If you would just maybe do that thing. Like, I don't even need Gabriel. Just send me one of his friends. Just right here, presence, glowing, standing next to me. I will burn incense in whatever room you want me to burn incense. I'll burn something else if you want me to burn something else. Like just whatever you want set on fire, just bring that angel who is going to stand here and tell me that after 400 years in silence, I just got the one job that I always wanted to have. I saw an angel. You're telling me that you want to give me what my heart's desire is. And my response to you is, how do I know that would happen? It's a freaking angel. And I love that that wasn't enough. 
Because I don't think it would be enough for me either if my heart was in that dark of a place, if I had given up that much hope, if I had been showing this outward righteousness that the world saw for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but I had this inward, unmet desire on the inside of my heart that was just burning me up inside of saying, how much more could I do on your behalf? And yet, I don't get this thing that I've been asking you for years and years and years. How do I stand up and preach and tell people, give your cares to Jesus, give your burden to the Lord, when the burden that I carry, I had to actually bury the dream of it? I don't think... Gabriel was enough, not because he's an angel of the Lord, but because when we are overly frustrated with unmet expectations, a simple appearing of an angel isn't enough. Because God loves us enough to heal what was broken on this journey so that we can actually be part of what he was really doing in the silence. Because when we're too broken by the silence to join him in his work, the silence in, the story changes. And we didn't know it happened because we're still in our dark place. So be comforted. There's no shame because the righteous weren't getting what they asked for either. There's, there's no shame. Because opening your Bible and just reading more scripture wasn't enough here either. Because having the physical presence of a messenger of God wasn't enough here either. So there's no shame in our church for not aligning directly with the word of God because there's no shame in the story of God when the angel shows up That's just when the healing starts. So the question is, what's going on in your inner self? That was the question that the angel was really asking Zechariah. He said, how will I know? That's, that's an inside question. That's a, I don't know if I have enough faith to do this question. What's your question? What's going on on the inside that you're not showing on the outside? In Psalm 51 verse 6, Supposedly, David writes Psalm 51 in response to Nathan confronting him, Bathsheba's story, destruction of his friend, death, brokenness. David's response in Psalm 51 verse 6 is, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God seeks to reconcile what's going on in the inside, in the deepest places of us. Not just on the surface. So we're going to jump to Luke 1, 57 through 65. And it says, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy. They shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no. He is to be called John, which means the Lord is gracious. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name, which was tradition at the time. Like, where, like, where are you getting that name? You can't name him that. 
I would have been real bad at the hospital if people wanted to fight me over naming my children. But that's what was happening here. <laughs> you cannot name him Finn. Like, I will show you what I will name him. She stood up for her little boy and says, no, his name is John. And they said, no, there's no one in your family named John. Well, let's go check with your husband. And they said, um, then they made signs to his father, which illustrates that Zechariah was not only mute in response to not connecting and saying, yeah, 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 I'm all in on the story that Gabriel gave because he was given some silence throughout the rest of the pregnancy, which there's another message here. He went home without the ability to hear or speak, and then his wife got pregnant. We have middle schoolers in the room, so we won't go down that message. That's some game right there. Well done, sir. (laughs) It's awesome. They made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child, and he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. The Lord is gracious. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free and he began to speak, praising God. And all the neighbors were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all of these things. And so my last question is that this, how has your faith been impacted by your frustrating circumstances? So Zechariah cannot speak and he cannot hear for the duration of the pregnancy of his wife and the birth of his son. And it is not until eight days after the birth of his child that he cannot communicate. Like he's frustrated, can't communicate without the ability to connect verbally. He would have to be frustrated. But instead of his frustration turning into resentment, he deepened his pursuit of righteousness. See, the righteous living before this story is the foundation that got Zechariah through the frustration to the place that eight days in, he's saying his name is John, let's celebrate together. I'm still here, I haven't left. I haven't bailed on my faith and I haven't bailed on my wife. I'm still in because his pursuit of righteousness when his needs weren't being met allowed him to endure the silence so that his son could meet needs that he didn't know need to, needed to be met. And so he writes a song. And he says, I'm okay giving my son a name that is not from my family lineage, which means my family lineage now has a new definition and something dies with me when I die and something new starts with John when he is born into this as a voice calling out from the wilderness, pursuing the kingdom of God before the Messiah. He was willing to change his entire family story and business to be about what God wanted to do through his son instead of what he had originally needed from his son. And the story changed because he said his name is John. Because God is gracious. He met me in my silence and I learned to communicate. And so he sings a different story. How has your faith been impacted by your frustrating circumstances? 
Have you written heartbreaking, overwhelming, painful poetry and stories in order that the world may know? There's nothing wrong with them for being frustrated or hurt or wounded. But that something's coming. Warren and Jean taught me that. I mean, the darkest children's home I had ever been. And I couldn't deal with the chaos that was happening around. And we're getting a tour of this children's home while all of this madness is happening. And I watched Jean, Warren's wife, just leave the tour. Like, she's just like, yeah, this, this is not why I'm here. I'm not here to hear about where the bathroom is or where the kitchen is or how terrible this children's home is. She just walks over to this little infant. He looked like he was about six months old laying on an oversized beanbag. And she just curls up next to him. And she reflects the same posture that he had. So he's all curled up. So she curls up next to him. And he had pads on his hands because he had been beating himself in the ears and he wouldn't stop. And she looked him in the eyes and she started to caress his cheek and she took the little bandage off of his hand and she started to take his hands and started to pat it on hers and he started to smile. His eyes started to light up and she looked over and she said, how old is this boy? And the director of the home said, we think he's about like less than a year. He's, he, they carry him around in like a, a baby Bjorn. She's like, yeah, he's like five. He can communicate. He's just never had a reason to because he's been neglected. He's never had to ask for anything because he was small. They would just carry him. She just looked in his eyes and said, this boy can speak and he can learn. The boy's name is Victor. And after we found some things that were going on in his intestine that were delaying development, we learned more about his story and we started some different rehabilitation. Victor's starting to look like his age. And he communicates and he moves around this place and as on that first day I'm looking at the giant overstuffed beanbag and this 55 year old woman curled up in a position with what looks like a six month old I look at Warren and Warren looks at me like I I've never seen her do what she does. We've never been in the same place. That's my wife. Six years later, Warren and Jean now create like little modules and learning boxes and take them to Mazatlan for every kid that they meet. This kid can communicate. Here's how, here's how, here's how, here's the box. Here's what will work for this one. That facility has turned from the biggest dump in the world into the nicest, most cutting-edge, innovative children's home for special needs I've ever seen. It's amazing. Other foundations have joined us in making mobility and communication and things. 
And I don't know that I'll ever hear Victor's side of the story to know what those years of silence were like. But it took someone else pushing through the frustration of their circumstances to help him find his voice. What are we waiting for? If we're in the thick of it, let's wait together. What's the prayer of our heart? Does anyone besides you know it? Let's be the church that shares those prayers and walks through them together. What's in your inner being that you're really wrestling with? Let's put off external righteousness and let's get to the real stuff that's inside. What stories of frustration is it time to start telling one another so that we can see each other for who we really are, longing for the same salvation that Zechariah was singing about? That's where we'll see each other. That's where we'll see the world. And I think that's where we'll find our voice. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. I pray that you just continue to remind me of the, the miraculous part of it that was simply a one-shot story about you ushering in Jesus. And then take root in me the rest of it that is about those of us who have frustrations and doubts and unmet expectations and how you will wait with us, invite us into silence, and then restore our voice. It's in your name. Amen.